I really have become that guy who, who has become the old preacher. And the reason I say that is because um, I've been in ministry for a long, long time. I started as a pastor when I was really, really young. Um, in fact, it was when, uh, when I was only 20 years old. That was 37 years ago. I became a pastor of the only other church that I've served as lead pastor in my life at the age of 20. Now think about this. I had been saved at the age of 16. At 20, I'm a pastor. And uh, that tells you how, had you known back then, you should have been praying for that little church that I was pastoring back in those days. I was, uh, I was a fireball, ready to go. I was going to change the world and start with that little congregation. Uh, the only thing is I forgot to ask them if they wanted to change. And uh, so they were so gracious and so loving and so kind to me over a period of three years. After serving as the pastor of that church for three years, I then went back to my home church. It's the church where I got saved. And I served as the associate pastor at that church for two years. And then in 1989, I came to serve as the pastor of Brookstone Church. It was 32 years ago that I became your pastor here at Brookstone. And altogether, that's almost four decades of pastoral ministry. For 37 years, God has allowed me to shepherd the saints in a local church. And I want to tell you that over all of those years, I've learned, well, I hope I've learned a number of things, but I've learned one thing that I know to be absolutely true in nearly four decades of ministry, and it's this. It is that not everyone is going to finish this race well. It's true. It's sad news, but it's the truth. Not everybody is going to be faithful to Jesus until the end of their lives. Some people will simply vanish. They will simply and suddenly walk away from their church, from the service of God, maybe even to some degree from their faith. And not always, but very, very often when that happens, it's the result of their life being wrecked by sin. Not always, but very often. It happens. Sometimes people don't finish well because just along the course of life, something happens. They kind of lose their joy they, uh, they become weak. You know, the Bible says the joy of the Lord is my strength. And so they become weak and then they just sort of slowly fade away. And it's almost imperceptible, honestly. You, you, you really don't see it coming until one day you look around and you go, what? where'd so-and-so go? What, what's going on with that couple or those people or that person? The fact is they just sort of faded away. Now, some people get distracted by the world because there are a lot of distractions in the world. And so some people, that happens to them. It's almost like they get swallowed up by the culture. And having started out on a journey to serve the Lord, somehow the allure of this world draws them away. And they lose their way. They just sort of get lost in the things of the world. And other people decide that they prefer ease. They, they prefer a personal ease to personal sacrifice or surrender. They prefer isolation to community. 
And because of that, that ultimately always leads to a self-focus. And it always, when we become self-focused, we will end up disappointed and oftentimes bitter. And as a result of that, being focused on ourselves, then we don't finish the race well. Now, these things are all true. I've watched them happen over 40 years, nearly, of pastoral ministry. Now, I need to say to you as well that this is not something that's only true of, of uh, you know, Brookstone Church or any other individual church. And it's not really just a 21st century problem. This has always been a problem in the body of Christ. It really has. Listen to these verses. Galatians 5 and verse 7 says, you did run well. You started out running the race for Jesus well. What happened? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1 in verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away, having put away faith and a good conscience concerning the faith, they've made shipwreck. What began as a Christian walk or a Christian experience, a Christian journey, sailing mightily for the Lord, suddenly is a shipwreck on the bottom of the ocean of their life because they put away the wrong things. In 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10, Paul writes out of great disappointment about his friend and ministry partner, Demas. And here's what he says about Demas. He says, Demas, having loved this world, has deserted me and he's gone to Thessalonica. It's a true statement. Not everybody finishes the race well. The fact is these verses, and there are others that I could have shared with you, they ought to serve as flashing warning signs to every single one of us. They should serve as warnings of the possibility of failing in our Christian walk that lies within every one of our hearts. That every single person under the sound of my voice, and in fact the guy speaking for all of us, it is possible that we would not finish well, that we might fade away, that we might get swept up by the culture, that we might quit serving Jesus. And I just, I just want it to be my testimony to you today, okay? I just want to say it publicly. My desire, it is my heart's desire to finish the race well. I want to come to the end of my life, to my final breath. When I draw it in, I want it to be said of me that he loved Jesus and he served Jesus until the very last breath. That he drew. And I believe that's your desire as well. I want that for you. And I believe that you want that to be your experience as well. And so this is the reason we've turned to Genesis chapter number 50 today. Because Joseph was that guy. Joseph was a guy who was faithful all the way to the end. He really did finish well. And so we've been following Joseph's life over all of these last two months. We've been learning from him how to trust God with our future and how to trust God in our suffering and how to trust God with our families and how to trust God for forgiveness and all those kinds of things. Well, we ought to also learn from Joseph how to trust God to finish well, how to trust the Lord all the way to the end. You will remember that it was eight Sundays ago that we met Joseph when he was just a 17-year-old boy. And at the age of 17, Joseph had it made. His life was going extremely 
Well, I hope you'll remember that I introduced you to Joseph from Genesis 37 and verse 3, where the Bible says he was the favored son of Jacob. Jacob loved him more than all of his other sons, and he gave him that multicolored, very expensive tunic to wear in front of all of his brothers. He was, as a 17-year-old boy, the favored son with the fancy robe and all of the good things in life. But we learned over these weeks that following that brief verse, chapter 37, verse 3, his life took a turn. Joseph's life took a turn down a different kind of a road where he would have to learn to trust in God because, quite frankly, he would have no one else to trust him. Somebody has said that you never know for sure that Jesus is enough until Jesus is all you have. And this is what Joseph discovered that God was enough for him. And that when he had no one else, that God would remain faithful to him. Let me remind you of this principle that we learned way back in the beginning of this series about Joseph's learning to trust God. Write it down again. It is that Joseph learned to trust God through adversity and through injustice and through suffering. Loved ones, hear me. This is usually where we learn to trust God the most completely. Not in the days of plenty, not in the days of victory, but it's in the days of injustice and suffering and hardship that we discover that we can trust completely in him. And so we followed Joseph on this path. It's been a, it's been a, a life-changing journey for me. I hope it has been for you as well. I was so encouraged after our first service this morning, a gentleman approached me visiting from Colorado, been in town serving in a ministry here. He said, I've been a Christian for so long. I've served in ministry for 40 years. He says, I want to tell you, this teaching on Joseph has changed my life. It's not my teaching. It's the power of the word of God. And I hope that you've experienced life change through what we've learned about Joseph during these days. I know that, that I have. Let me walk you through what we've, what we've learned before we read about Joseph's final days. You'll remember, as I've just mentioned, that he was the favored son, but he was also the hated brother. And because he was so hated by his brothers, they acted in evil ways against him and they sold him into slavery. So he went from being top to being on the bottom. He went from the pinnacle of, of almost perfection in life to being in the pit but having been sold into slavery, he quickly excelled in the house of Potiphar. But when he was excelling in the house of Potiphar, doing so well, the chief steward over all of Potiphar's house and his lands and his money and everything, he was falsely accused, as you'll remember, by Potiphar's wife. She accused him of trying to sexually assault her, and Potiphar had him thrown in prison. So once again, from the pinnacle, at least the pinnacle of slavery, down into the prison. And when he was in the prison, what did Joseph do? He did what Joseph did. He trusted God, the Lord was with him, and he began to rise to prominence again, even in the prison. Ultimately being elevated to the throne of Egypt, the governor of Egypt, second in command only to Pharaoh. And it was on that position, or in that position as the governor of Egypt, that he provided salvation, literally, for the country of Egypt and even for the nation of Israel. He kept them from starvation. And when he was in a position to take justifiable vengeance upon his brothers, he didn't do it. When he could have taken revenge on them, he didn't, but rather he forgave them. 
And his forgiveness of them led to this beautiful reunion, not only with his brothers, but with his father, and ultimately the entire family coming to Egypt where Joseph provided for them and gave them everything that they needed and kept them alive through five more years of famine. Now, by the way, I have to stop and point out to you, if you haven't already noticed it, that the life of Joseph presents for us a beautiful illustration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see the parallels between Joseph and Jesus? Like Joseph, Jesus was beloved of his father, but hated and rejected by his own people. And having been hated and rejected by his own people, he was cast into a pit and he suffered and died for us. But following his suffering, he was resurrected and exalted to the highest position. And through his suffering and his exaltation, he now offers salvation to everyone who will come and bow down before him. And while all of us deserve his judgment and his vengeance, rather he offers us his forgiveness. And when we are forgiven by him, he draws us to himself and he provides for us and sustains us and nourishes us in everything that we need. This is the gospel all the way back in the book of Genesis, as illustrated by the life of Joseph. Well, Joseph did all of these things that we've been talking about. He experienced all of these things. And we come to chapter number 50 today. And sadly, we're going to have to say goodbye to Joseph. And we're going to say goodbye to Joseph because Joseph is going to die in our text today. I want you to follow along as I read. I'm beginning in verse number 22, Genesis chapter 50. Verse number 22, the Bible says Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house. That means he and his brothers and their families. Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived for 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. Also the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were brought up upon Joseph's knees. And Joseph said unto his brothers... I'm dying. God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he swore unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and, shall, uh, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now it's interesting to me that the biblical narrative devotes 20 chapters to Joseph's life, which by the way is a lot. I mean, you think about it, the Bible does not devote 20 chapters to very many of its main players, its characters. Uh, as an example, Abraham gets about 14 chapters to describe his life. Jacob gets about the same. Isaac got a dozen chapters. But Joseph gets 20 chapters. And the sheer volume of biblical content describing his life is evidence of the significance and the impact of Joseph's life. And yet, though he is deeply significant and nationally transformative. I mean, think about it. Joseph literally saved the Messiah seed 
so that Jesus could be born and salvation could happen. Had the Israelites starved to death in Egypt during the, during the famine, Jesus would have never been born. He literally saved salvation for the whole earth. And yet, one verse is dedicated to his obituary. Did you see it? Verse 26, one verse. It says in verse number 26, so Joseph died at 100 years old and was embalmed. That's his obit. If you had picked up the Egyptian newspaper, that the, the Ramses recorder that morning, if you had picked up the Egyptian newspaper and read the obituaries, by the way, do you do that? Do you, those of you who still take the paper, do you, do you read the obituaries first thing in the morning? I know some people who do this and they always say, I'm checking to see if my name is in it. If I don't see my name, I know it's the beginning of a good day. If you had read the Egyptian obituaries that morning, this is what it would have said. Joseph, governor of Egypt, has died. He's embalming, or we're embalming him now and putting him in a coffin. You know the interesting thing about obituaries? We're all going to have one one day. You ever considered that? One day, you're going to have your very own. Here's some good news. I'm going to give you something this morning. You're going to have your very own verse 26 one day. One day, it's going to say, instead of, so Joseph died, it's just going to, you fill in the blank, so Jim died. Or you put your name in there. So you died at whatever age, and it says of Joseph, they embalmed him and put him in a coffin. If my obituary shows up this week, it'll say they're burying him in West Memorial Park. Come love on my bride. And we're all going to have that obituary one day. And so when we think about arriving at that day, when we think about what it's going to be to come to the finish line, how can we know that we will get there having finished well? Well, I want to talk about it for a few minutes from Joseph's life. Would you write these things down? First of all, finishing well, like Joseph shows us, finishing well looks like passing the torch to the next generation. It does. Finishing well looks like passing the torch to the next generation. Verse number 23 describes Joseph's joy in knowing his grandchildren. Not just his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, and even his great-great-grandchildren. Now, that's uncommon today. It's not unheard of, but it's uncommon that someone would know their great-great-grandchildren because we don't live as long as Joseph did. Most people don't live to be over 100 in our day. But he knew his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, and his great-great-grandchildren. And every grandparent in the room knows the joy of having a relationship with your grandchildren. Now, I always feel the temptation right here because I'm loving grandparenting so much to sort of go off on this tangent of how wonderful being a grandparent is. I'm not going to do it, but can I just get a brief witness from every grandparent in the room? Is it great or what? Shout amen if it is. That was so weak, grandparents. I know you know it was better than that. Being a grandparent is the greatest thing ever. They, they tell me that grandchildren are God's reward for not killing your kids. <laughs> amen. I think I've told you before, I said to our youngest, our daughter, I said, when y'all were growing up, we didn't love you. We thought we loved you, but we didn't. We liked you. This is love, man. <laughs> Joseph and Jim, and you if you're a grandparent, we know what it is to enjoy this relationship with your grandkids. And, and Joseph had this opportunity to know his grandkids and to pass the torch 
to the next generation. Look at verse number 23. It talks about the, 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 the children of Ephraim to the third generation. That would be his great-grandchildren. And even the, the, the children of Maker, this would be his great-great-grandchildren. Maker would be his grandchild, Manasseh being his son. It says in verse 23 that they were brought up upon Joseph's knees. Now, interestingly, a couple of things are in view here. Uh, in the first place, in, in antiquity, when an infant was born, they would very often take that child and put it in the lap of the grandfather or the grandmother, the grandparents, to signify lineage, to show the family line. You may remember this from the book of Ruth, when Boaz and Ruth had a baby boy named Obed, and they took that baby and they put that baby in the lap of Naomi, the grandmother. So they're showing lineage, okay? That's one thing that's going on. But the, the more obvious thing that all of us would understand that's going on is that this is demonstrating the joy of, of simply Joseph knowing his grandchildren, raising them on his knee, teaching them, playing with them, speaking to them, and literally passing some things on to them. Now, loved ones, all of us do this. We all leave something to the next generation. We all pass a torch of some kind. Usually when we think about leaving something to the next generation, we're thinking about wealth or money or properties or some sort of inheritance. And we all do that to some degree. I mean, some leave a vast amount of wealth to, uh, to their heirs and others leave a much more modest amount of wealth. But we do leave things behind when we go. Maybe it's a family heirloom, right? You, you, there's some family heirloom that's been in the family for years and, and uh, that's passed on to someone else. Maybe it's the mantle clock or some special piece of jewelry that, that you want to hang on to that belonged to your, your parents. I've got a ring. I never, ever wear it, uh, but it belonged to my father. It's this really beautiful gold ring with some diamonds in it, and, and he wore it. He was a businessman. He wore it beautifully. I, I, it's just a little much for me, so I never wear it, but I've got it locked in safety, and, and it was passed to me when he died. Those kinds of things are, are passed on. Uh, some, people, some people pass along bad things, right? So maybe what you're passing along to your son or your daughter, or your grandchildren, is a kind of generational curse, a sin pattern that was handed to you by your parents or grandparents, and you've just continued in that sin pattern, and now you're passing it along to your kids or your grandkids. Maybe it's some sort of attitude of hate Maybe the, an attitude of racism that you were handed and now you've just propagated it and you're passing it along. Or, or maybe it's some uh, sort of um, addiction, addictive behavior, substance abuse that, you know what, you grew up in it, it was all around you, and now you're just perpetuating that and passing it along to the next generation. We all pass a torch of some kind. But I want to tell you what Joseph passed along and what we need to be passing along if we're going to finish well. And that is that we should pass along a powerful testimony of the greatness of our God. We should be telling the next generation how wonderful and faithful and good and powerful our God is. Can you imagine Joseph with maker, his grandson on his knee, or with um, his, his great-grandchildren, even his great-grandchildren. You know how they do, just climbing all over you, and you're able to play with them and talk to them and model for them. How wonderful 
and how faithful God is. I can imagine Joseph sitting his grandbabies on his knees and his children on his knees when they were young and talking to them about how God had been with him through every part of his journey and how God had promised him when he was 17 of what his future would be and how the Lord had brought him up out of the pit and brought him up out of the prison and used him to rescue so many lives. This is the goodness of God in my life. And boys and girls, I want you to know that this God that we serve is good and he's faithful. This is what we're called to do. It's what we're called to pass along. And loved ones, if you don't pass that to the next generation, then you will not be finishing well. Leave them the wealth of the world if you want. Leave them jewelry and lands galore. But if you don't give them Jesus, then you've left them poor and poverty-stricken. The Bible says in Psalm 145 and verse 4, our generation or one generation shall praise praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. It is up to this generation to tell that generation of the power of God. 2 Timothy 1 and verse number 5, Paul says to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith and that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And now I'm sure it dwells in you as well. Lois had it. Eunice got it. Timothy received it from Eunice because they were faithfully passing the torch. And if you want to finish well, let it be that when you've drawn your last breath, when your obituary has been written, your children, your grandchildren, the descendants following them will know of the greatness of God, at least in part, because they heard it from your lips and they saw it in your life. To do so is to finish well. Secondly, if we want to finish well, we should know that it looks like never giving up on God's promises. Never giving up on God's promises. You know, Joseph learned to walk by faith over the course of many years in Egypt. And he saw the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to him when he was a 17-year-old boy. He saw everything that God had promised come to pass. And if we could talk to Joseph, he would say, you know what's true about God? If he says it, you can bank on it. If If it's God's promise... It's going to come to pass. And so you and I need to pass along that same kind of heritage that we never give up on God's promise. When Joseph is 110 years old, do you see it in verse 24? When he's 110 years old, he is still clinging to the promises of God. Look at it in verse 24. Joseph said unto his brothers, I'm getting ready to die, but God will surely visit you And bring you out of this land, unto the land which he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Three promises of God that Joseph clings to in one verse. Promise number one, God will surely visit you. Promise number two, God will bring you out of this land. Promise number three, God will give you the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And at 110 years old, with death encroaching upon his life and his final breath near, he's saying, God will keep his promises. Now, where did he get these promises? How did he know these promises? Well, they're found in Genesis chapter number 15, and they had been passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and to Joseph and his brothers. It was in those verses, let me just read them to you. Genesis 15, verse number 13. God speaking to Abram says, Know with certainty 
that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them for 400 years and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge and afterward they shall come out with great substance. God had said to Abraham, you're going to go, your people are going to go into Egypt in a strange land and be servants there, slaves, for 400 years, but then I'm going to bring them out. And Joseph believed that that promise would in fact be true. Now maybe his brothers had begun to doubt. I don't know. Maybe his brothers didn't didn't think all of this was going to come to pass because their beginning in Egypt looked nothing like their end in Egypt would look. Maybe they didn't believe it anymore. And so Joseph is encouraging them to believe the promises of God. He's reminding them of God's promises. And maybe Joseph's grandchildren were uninterested in the promises. Maybe they were like a lot of modern kids, right? They, they were like, oh, Grandpa, people don't really talk that way anymore. People don't really believe that stuff anymore. That was a long time ago. Surely that's not relevant in our lives. And yet he was telling them God's promises are sure. And maybe some people in Joseph's circle didn't want to believe the promises because the promise wasn't just one of deliverance. It was also one of, judge, of uh, suffering. He said they're going to suffer as slaves for 400 years. And maybe they weren't too interested in God's deliverance because they didn't want to go through the hard part anyway. And so they just rejected the whole thing. But what Joseph did was to cling to those promises of God. And so here's what I want to say to you today. Listen to me carefully. If you want to finish well, not only do you need to pass the torch to, to the next generations, but you need to believe God's word until you die. Listen, believe his promises until your final breath. Never doubt his word, never doubt his promises. And when you draw your last breath, you draw it in and exhale it, trusting that God will be true to his word. You'll finish well if you'll do that. There's one last thing. That if we want to finish well, we need to know that it looks like passing the torch. That's important. And we need to know that it looks like clinging to God's promises. We must do that. But thirdly, finishing well looks like never losing sight of your real home. It looks like never losing sight of your real home. Let me tell you something about Joseph. Joseph knew that Egypt was not his home. And when you think about it, this is a pretty amazing truth about Joseph because he had lived, wait for it, 93 of his 110 years on this earth, he lived in Egypt. If any place was home for Joseph, it had to be Egypt. That's where he spent nearly all of his life. But he knew that it wasn't his home. He knew that Egypt wasn't his home, even though he was tied to the land, connected to that land by virtue of his children. Both of his children were born in Egypt. All of his grandchildren were born in Egypt. And yet, even though he was connected to the land that way, he knew that it wasn't his home. Do you know that everything that Joseph gained in this world, he gained in Egypt? His fame, his prosperity, his wealth, his power, everything that defined who Joseph was as a, as a success in the world's eyes, all were gained in Egypt. And yet he knew, Egypt is not my home. 
How did he know it? How do we know that he knew it? Well, look at what the Bible says in verses 25 and 26. He knows it's not his home. He knows his real home is in the promised land because he says in verse 25, God is going to visit you and carry my bone or carry you out of here. And so you, when he does that, you take my bones out of this land. Joseph says, don't leave my bones in Egypt. He says, I don't want to be laying next to King Tut in some pyramid. You take my bones out of this land because this land's not my home. You take my bones into the promised land. You carry me home. The New Testament affirms that Joseph said this. Hebrews eleven twenty two says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. And he gave directions that they should carry his bones when the time of that exodus came. This isn't my home. Don't leave me here. And by the way, you need to know that Joseph's relatives didn't always remember this, did they? Some of them forgot, and they began to think that Egypt really was their home. Later on, long after Joseph has died, when the exodus finally does occur, the Bible tells us about some of Joseph's family and how they they really longed for Egypt to be their home. I'm going to read it to you. You don't have to turn. Listen to Numbers chapter 11. This is during the days of the Exodus, right after they've left Egypt according to the promise of God. They're on their way home to the promised land, and life's a little bit tough. Now listen to what happens. Numbers 11 and verse 4 says, When the mixed multitude that were among them, uh, they, they uh, began to lust. And the children of Israel wept. And they said, who shall, who shall give us flesh to eat? For we remember the fish which we didn't eat in Egypt freely. We remember the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is drying up for there is nothing at all for us to eat besides this manna which is before our eyes. What happened to them? These are the people of God. These are God's sons and daughters. And suddenly, when life gets difficult, rather than realizing that Egypt was a time of suffering and a place of preparation for their real home, the only thing they could think of was going back to Egypt and enjoying what they had there, the fish and the, and the vegetables and the good meals that they enjoyed. Do you know that we face the same temptation? If y'all are listening, I want you to shout amen. amen. Listen to this. Do you know that for us, we live in this world so completely? We put our root, roots so deep. We so enjoy the pleasures of this world that we are tempted when life gets a little bit tough to not look to our final eternal home, but rather to keep looking back to Egypt. So that when we begin to suffer a little bit in this life, i.e. when pandemics strike or liberties are taken away or governments become oppressive or cultures change, 
For some of us, all we can think about is, how can I get back to the way it used to be? How can my life become easy like it once did? Listen to me, you're not home yet. This world is never gonna be your home. So stop living only to make it better down here and lift your eyes to your eternal home in heaven. Because if you only look here, and you only want this life to be all it used to be and all it once was, and you live in that nostalgia, you will fail to finish well. Because finishing well means I never forget that this isn't truly my home. Joseph said in Genesis 50, or Hebrews 11 affirms it, that he said, this isn't my home. I want you to carry me out of here to another home. So let's be like Joseph, can't we? Let's be like Joseph and the other heroes of the faith that Hebrews 11 mentions. Let's be like Abel and Noah and, and Enoch and, and Samson and David and Gideon and Rahab and others mentioned in Hebrews 11. Let's look for a city. Let's focus our attention on our real home. Listen to Hebrews 11 verses 13 to 16. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They that say such things do declare plainly that they seek a country. For if they had been thinking about the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, but instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. May I challenge you this morning, let's walk by faith. Let's finish well as we look to our heavenly home. You want to finish well? Then you pass the torch of faith and you cling to God's promises and you lift your eyes and you keep looking toward heaven and you won't be a casualty of the faith. You will finish the race well by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let me say two more things to close. One is, you can't finish what you never begin. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I want you to hear me this morning. Heaven is not your destination. There's no one going to heaven without Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus Christ suffered and he died in payment of the penalty of your sin and mine. He died to pay for your sins and mine on the cross and he rose from the dead. And Jesus and Jesus alone is the Savior. And if you will repent of your sins and trust in Christ as your Savior, then heaven can be your home. But you will not finish well what you never begin. And I want to invite you to trust in Christ today. The last thing I want to point out to you back in Genesis chapter number 50 is that Joseph, understanding that this wasn't his home and longing to go to his uh, permanent home, longing to go to his promised home. The Bible says that he gives instructions that they are to carry his bones up, verses 25 and 26, and the Bible says that they, he died, verse 26, at 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, you know what a coffin is, right? We've all seen coffins. Um, we've been to the funeral home, the cemetery. We, we, we know exactly what a coffin is, but did you know that the word that's translated coffin in verse number 26 is a word which simply means a hope chest, a box which contains precious things. 
It's the same word that's used in the Old Testament that's translated ark as in the ark of the covenant. So the ark of the covenant was a coffin or a chest, a a hope chest, which contained the most precious possessions of Israel. It contained the uh, Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone. It contained a a golden pot of manna. It contained Aaron's rod that miraculously uh, sprang to life. But it was the precious items of Israel that were held in this hope chest. Well, when Joseph died, he was put into a hope chest. And he said before he died, now you put my bones in this ark, in this box, in this hope chest, this coffin, and I don't want to be left here because I have a home that I want you to take me to. And I'm going to die in faith, believing that God's going to keep his promises and you're going to carry my bones up to the land of Canaan. Well, in Exodus chapter number 13 and verse number 19, you know what happens? Moses carries the bones of Joseph out of Egypt. And in Joshua 24 and verse 32, the Bible tells us about the burial of the bones of Joseph. Not in Egypt, but in Canaan land, in Israel, near Shechem. He died in faith and was placed in a hope chest, waiting for the day he would go to his permanent home. And if you want to finish well, then you will one day, if you will pass that torch, and if you will cling to those promises of God, and if you will keep looking to your new home, you too will be laid in a coffin, a hope chest. And your family, your friends, your loved ones will take you out to a graveyard somewhere, and they're going to take that hope chest, and they're going to put it down in the ground, and you're going to say to them by your faith, but don't leave me here because I'm not at home yet. There is a permanent home, a heavenly home that I'm going to one day. And they will bury that hope chest in faith knowing that one day Jesus will come. If y'all with me, say amen. One day Jesus will come and the bodily resurrection will occur and that hope chest will be opened and our bodies will rise to be eternally with the Lord and together. And if you've buried a loved one, if there's a grave somewhere that you visit, Because your loved one who knew Jesus is buried in that grave. You know this, one day God will take that body. Now their spirit's already with the Lord, but God will take that body and will raise it in glorious perfection. Joseph said, here's what you need to know about God. I believe his promises and I'm not home yet. I'm going to my eternal home. And so he finished well. And here's what I believe. That Joseph, in verse number 26, when he had already said to them, I'm getting ready to die. I don't know exactly what it looked like, but at some point Joseph rolled over in his bed or he closed his eyes. You've been there when loved ones have done that. All of his kids around, his brothers around, his grandkids around. and He began to do that slow breathing and finally his last breath passed and he was gone. But in those moments, I believe Joseph could have been singing one of those worship songs that we sang today. Don't you think, knowing what you know about Joseph now, couldn't he have been singing, I love you, Lord. You have led me through the fire. In darkest night, you were close like no other. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. And I have lived. In the goodness of God. Because all my life, you have been faithful. And all my life, you have been so, so good. 
With every breath that I'm able, I will sing of the goodness of God.